one, one of my favorite quotes, Cameron is so tight that if you uh, stuck a lump of coal up his ass in two weeks, you'd have a diamond. You know, it was just one of those ones that the stupid little quotable things and we would just say them to each other just randomly and we'd just giggle. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. This week, we're going to be talking about the 1986 film Ferris Bueller's Day Off, written and directed by John Hughes, and I'm honored to welcome back to the show, Kimberly Cook. Welcome back to the Crooked Table Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. It's a pleasure to uh, get to collaborate with you again. Yeah, so it's been almost a year since we uh, talked about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace at this point so i guess we should follow that up with that was how the saga started what did you think about the rise of skywalker and how they you know i actually did enjoy it 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 tied up a lot of loose ends um it it, the film itself i think was just messy in general just because it was busy and they did have a lot to to tie up but i I think they tied it up with a a pretty nice bow uh to end the saga and i was actually pleased with it yeah I, i um I know people that think it's the the worst of all of the movies, and I don't know if I quite go that far. I will say I was more or less disappointed by elements of it, but I, sure. I you know, like we talked about the Phantom Menace. Like I don't think that's a necessarily air quotes great movie either, but there are things in there that I enjoy, and ultimately it's still Star Wars. So, but my thing with the uh, Rise of Skywalker, and I, I've said this I think on the show before, is that it's just to me it's the most frustrating Star Wars because. It does something really cool, and then it follows it up with something that I like, and a, a decision that I just can't can't follow, or like something that I, I just like the the whole Palpatine thing, basically. Like I feel like yeah. it gets a lot of it gets a lot of little things right, and it botches a lot of the big things. Like the wider mythology stuff is all over the place, and I have issues with that. But the little moments with Ray and and uh, with Ray and Kylo slash Ben. Uh, with the you know the the friends the chemistry between the three of them them actually having screen time together this time uh, a lot of the small things I really like about it so it's yeah it's a begrudging uh, a, a final chapter to the saga but it's I mean it's obviously one I'm still gonna get on Blu-ray and all that other stuff so I just I don't understand people that just, just like dismiss it completely and they're just like what a piece of what a garbage what a dumpster fire and I'm like well I mean elements of that i get but you hear these you know they have these videos on youtube where at the end of the movie when spoilers for people i haven't seen the rise of skywalker when uh when ray is is on tatooine and the lady's like oh ray what and she's like skywalker and then you hear all the people go oh i hate star wars or whatever <laughs> and i'm like well then this movie's not for you if you hate star wars i mean the whole point is to come you know you know i, I don't know it's i'm very i'm very all over the place with that one as you can tell basically Sure, but I will tell you that um, when I found out that it was being released early on digital due to the whole quarantine thing that we're all going through right now, um, I did actually go out and, and buy it the minute it was available on nice. digital. So, so we have actually. I think I've I've watched it twice. I think my husband's only watched it once, but uh, yeah, it, it was definitely something we had to add to our collection. Uh, and I, I will buy the Blu-ray too, just to have a physical copy as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm holding out until the the Blu-ray. I think it's like the end of the month or something. Otherwise, I would have yeah, I would have just done the digital too. I'm one of the 
I'm one of the people that still clings to uh, physical media as long as I possibly can. I still buy DVDs oh, and Blu-rays. A lot of people, I think, just download it and that's it. And I, I don't, I can't get on board with that yet. No, I, we, we do both. Um, we, we've got quite the extensive collection of uh, DVDs, Blu-rays, CDs, video games, anything like that that we still hold onto the physical media as well. We'll download a couple of things here and there just for convenience mostly, but we're just like you where we keep a hold of the physical stuff too, so... Yeah, I'm clinging. I'm clinging to my my Blu-rays until my last breath, basically, until they yeah. until they completely phase it out, and then I'll be like, all right, fine, I'll buy it on iTunes. I don't have a choice, I guess now. Yeah, um, but yeah, <laughs> cool. So yeah, I wanted to make sure we did follow up with that last episode, and and yeah. uh, that was really fun going through the uh, the Star Wars saga, and that was your the episode that we did together that really kind of inspired me to just you know what I should just do all of them. Let's just talk about all the Star Wars movies. And it just kind of fell into place, the the timing of it and everything. So we're going to actually be doing uh, Harry Potter uh, this year. So I have different Harry Potter episodes scheduled, and people can look forward to that. But... Uh, so I this, will say the, yeah, I listened to the I listened to the, the uh, handful of the, uh, the Star Wars episodes, and I will say they, they were great podcasts. So, you know, keep up the great work with, with the... the uh, the series with stuff like that. I think that worked out really, really cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I have to check and see if I have any Harry Potter openings, if you're interested at all in Harry Potter. <laughs> is that, uh, that is was that? one of the ones that I didn't get into as much. I've actually only ever seen the first two. Uh, okay. Strike me down. I know actually, my mother <laughs> is a diehard Harry Potter fan. It's all good. She, she cringes when I, I say, well, I probably want to see the first two. <laughs> I've only ever read one of the books, so oh, okay. that's, that's one of the ones. You're one of those know. people. Yeah, you're a muggle, is what people would call you. I'm assuming. I am. I am. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so this episode, we're here to talk about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. I said it before, and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. <laughs> What is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas. Well, why should he get to skip school when everybody else has to go? Syphilitic meningitis. He never gets caught. This guy in my biology class said that if Ferris dies, he's giving his eyes to Stevie Wonder. Well, he's very popular, Ed. I recall Central Park in fall. Ferris Bueller, do you know him? Yeah, he's getting me out of summer school. They think he's a righteous dude. Think he'll be alive this weekend? I can see him denying popular beliefs, setting off on some impossible mission. He jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. He does whatever he wants. You know, as long as I've known him, everything works for him. Whatever he wants. He's very cool. And he never gets nailed. Ferris can do anything. Oh, he's such a sweet. Wake up and smell the coffee, Mrs. Bueller. That was a little bit of the trailer for Ferris Bueller's Day Off from 1986, written and directed by John Hughes. So, Kimberly, what is it about Ferris Bueller's Day Off that made this the next film you wanted to talk about on the show? Ferris Bueller's Day Off is by far my most favorite movie ever. Um, and I don't even know how it got to be my favorite movie. It just, it was one of those ones that, um, you know, my friends and I would quote to each other. And anytime it was on TV, I had to sit and watch it. And it was just one of those stories that just, it, it's just a fun silly story it just kind of takes you out of reality and just kind of puts you in this over the top because Ferris Bueller is an over the top guy over the top character into the situations that are they really happening in real life you know could stuff like this actually happen in one day you know um and it's just it's just 
good, clean fun. It's also, I think, sort of John Yu's specialty, which is kind of those uh, suburban fantasies. Like, you know, they're all kind of set in suburbia. Not all, but like, I guess I'm thinking also of some of the movies that he's written, like Home Alone, uh, you know, um, uh, Breakfast Club is another one that's kind of set in like the small town, Illinois, Weird Science, like a lot that seems to be kind of his thing where everything is heightened, uh, weird science to to an enormous degree. But (laughs) just (laughs) that keeps kind of his his wheelhouse. Everything is set in either Chicago or, you know, the fictional Shermer, Illinois and I, I don't know, there's something, it must be something in the air because I recently recorded an episode uh, that I still haven't, well, by the time people hear this, I will have posted it, talking about pain, planes, trains, and automobiles. So I feel like I'm oh, somehow okay. having a little uh, stealth uh, John Hughes series going on throughout 2020. I'm actually now thinking <laughs> I have to see if anybody wants to talk about Breakfast Club. But my experience with it, with this one, is very different than most people. So when did you when did you first see it? I guess just you grew up just kind of with it as part of your life, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it was, I was seven when it came out. So, I mean, it wasn't anything I think I didn't see it in theaters. Um, probably just reruns on television, on, you know, like TBS on a Saturday afternoon or something like that. But, um, but like I said, it was just one of those movies that, um, you know, my, my friends and I are we're movie geeks, you know, and... You know, we would sit and, and, you know, watch movies, you know, on, if you want to call them plate back and then. Um, but, you know, we, we'd hang out and just kind of like, and just watch TV and watch movies. And um, there's just certain ones that we just kind of quoted to each other, even just, you know, passing each other in the hall at school, you know. But yeah, it, it was something, like I said, I was only seven when it came out, so obviously I didn't see it later, but um you know, as as a teenager, I mean, what kid didn't want to skip school and go explore in the city for a day, you know, and get away with all of it? The, the, the principal chasing after you and, and you know, duping him every single time he tries to catch you. And it's, it's who, what kid doesn't want to do that? Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think that's kind of what I was getting at with the suburban fantasy is obviously there's no Jedi or elves or dwarves or any of that kind of stuff in here, but you're following this like teenage philosopher slash Dennis the Menace kind of situation (laughs) where everything just falls into place. He's able to kind of uh, to throw in another eighties reference, kind of Axel Foley his way into any situation and out with no, with no problem. Uh, And he's smooth. Yeah. 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 He's just smooth. And you know, and we should obviously point out this was, made for $5 million and it grossed $70 million in 1986. So this was actually one of the biggest hits that year. Yes. Uh, Matthew Broderick was nominated for a Golden Globe. It, it's kind of defined his entire career. So, I mean, and rightfully so. Um, my experience watching this for the first time was, let's see, I think about probably eight years ago, actually. I hadn't seen, I never, I didn't grow up with any of really John Hughes. The only one of his films, weirdly enough, I guess pun intended, that I grew up watching was Weird Science. Like I didn't see Breakfast oh, okay. Club or any of these movies until much later. And then when my wife discovered that, she was like, "Well, we need to watch Ferris Bueller because her experience was sort of like yours, where like she grew up with it. She would go over to, like her friend's house and they had they had the movie and they would watch it a lot and that kind of thing, quoting it. And it was like part of her her you know day to day reference uh, reference points basically. So I you know I finally got got in on it uh, when we got together and she, you know, she brought it to my attention and obviously I'd heard of it. 
And by the time I finally got around to watching it, it was one of those things that it's so ingrained in our culture and you don't realize that until you're coming at it from a perspective much after the fact that so many scenes in it I had seen referenced or parodied on like Family Guy and things like that. Where when I when I watched the movie, I was like, oh, oh, oh that's what they were referencing. I didn't even get what that was until now. Um, it's just it's so such a big movie of of that decade, and also just not only of John Yu's career, but also influential in the genre uh, as a whole, kind of going forward. Well, there, there's a lot of pop culture references in the movie itself. Um, yeah. But going off of that, from '86 on. A lot of other uh, medium have used it as a pop culture reference, too. So, I mean, it, it was definitely something big for that time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's like I said, it's it, he's you can also see, I think, in this in this movie, I think there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of the seedling of an idea that would turn into Home Alone a few years later. Did you do you see that as well? Because I picked up on it this time. Uh, yeah, it just in a. Um, I, I know like older. A, yeah, it's just Ferris a, Bueller's ten years, ten years older. You know, yeah, or seven years older, or whatever. Right. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, and it, another John Hughes classic for sure. Right, and then it seems to me, especially with the like the mechanism for um, when his his mom goes to check on him in bed, the sort of uh, you know the whole absolutely that whole thing felt very um, very much like home. Remind me actually of Home Alone Two: Lost in New York. When uh, Tim Curry goes to check on in the, in the break into the room and he's got like the, the clown doll in the shower and all that. It reminded me so much of that, of, of that kind of thing. But then on the flip side, Jeannie, played by Jennifer Grey, who obviously was like, a, what, a year away from her really big break out in Dirty Dancing. Uh, she's also a little bit of a Kevin McAllister here, too, because she's like, oh, I hate my family. Nobody I want. She even says I want out of this family at one point. Uh, yeah. So I think you really kind of see when you when you look back at, at John Yu's movies, you see kind of these these running themes and sort of these elemental, as you were saying, what kid wouldn't want to do these things and like live this life and break away from that? Like uh, life would be so cool if only I didn't have to go to school or listen to my parents and blah, blah, blah. And you get to see that play out in kind of a best case scenario. Absolutely. And it's why I, I kind of think, I mean, even now, I mean, I love to, to watch the movie. If it's on TV, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. And I'm going to watch. Um, you know, and it is on Netflix right now. If you, those of you out there who have Netflix, Netflix it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, now they have people have plenty of time to Netflix things, too. So Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Watch Ferris Bueller. That, um, you know, you, even now, you know, like I said, I, I, I stop and watch it. And but it was just uh, it, it's just one of those feel good movies that, uh, you know, has, has definitely been a favorite of mine over the years. And it was uh, one of the ones I, I wanted to to sit and chat about with you. Yeah. Uh, um, another element that I really like of this movie is the, all the fourth wall breaking. Like I, I love all that stuff. And I feel like this is probably one of the best examples of it. And in one of the ways in which this movie has been so influential, I don't know how, how common or popular that was prior to this movie. Uh, I don't think much. No. Yeah. And, 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 and it, it was funny. The, the, Basically, he's giving you tips and tricks on how to get away with everything <laughs> while he's doing it. He absolutely is. It, it strikes me now that we're talking about it. It makes me, it feels like the movie is almost based on like 
uh, an advice book. You know how they have like uh, yeah. what to expect when you're expecting and like uh, he's just not that into you. And those are like, you know, mm-hmm. life self-help books. And then they somehow turn them into movies. This sort of feels like that. It's like how to skip school and get, get away with it. And yeah, then they exactly. made a movie based off of that book is what it feels like. Absolutely. That's, that's very funny. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, cause you know, obviously we get that throughout, he sort of narrates things and, and points things out. And, and in a way you could almost be like, well, that, you know, that's kind of a gimmick, whatever. But I mean, it, I don't think it really was at this point, like we were saying, I think that was kind of, kind of original, or at least if it had been done, hadn't been popularized in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, and I think it kind of added to the fun of it. You know, we, you know, he, he would, you know, look at the camera and obviously the characters around him weren't, you know, aren't talking to the camera either. But it was just him that was, you know, breaking that fourth wall, which I think it made a lot more fun that, you know, you were kind of getting his thoughts without, you know, without him, you know, there, there's the acting aspect of it, obviously, but, um, getting into his head and, and seeing his rationale behind things, I think was just that much more funny. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a, it's more like a kid's view or a teenager's view on, on adult life where everything is, is exaggerated. Like, you know, not only Ferris, just the movie as a whole, really, because everybody, you know, you're, you're seeing strictly from the perspective of Ferris, of Cameron, of uh, Sloan and so everything is like, oh, this is what marriage must be like. These parents, these, you know, my parents hate each other. And this, the principal is like a demonic, crazy person. Like the whole movie, <laughs> it, it feels like it's, it feels like, um, <clears throat> like, uh, what is it? I think it's Peanuts, where the, all the adults are talking like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the kids are the only ones that make sense or something like, uh, right. Oh man, I had it in my head and now I lost it. Something like Muppet Babies or Rugrats. That's that's the one I was thinking. Where it's like uh, okay, the, yeah. the the kids know what's really going on and the adults are just like off in their own in their own, you know, off, all wrapped up in their own bullshit basically. So I, <laughs> yeah. I I liked kind of seeing it seeing it now as an and as an adult. I mean, I obviously I was an adult when I saw it, but seeing it now especially as a parent, I'm like, oh, "Okay, I get it. This is completely a kid's perspective on everything you know on adulting like oh these these parents they don't know what's going on they just need to stop and look around you know they're gonna miss it that kind of thing and and it's on the one hand sort of uh sort of naive or innocent it's not, you know these kids don't know how much more complicated their life is their lives are gonna get right. when they when they enter the real world but it's also there's something kind of pure and elemental about it as well that I think speaks to why the movie resonates with people that not only grew up with it and have that nostalgic connection, but also, you know, it kind of taps into that, that sounds cliche now, but like that kid in all of us that are like, I remember that time when I was hopeful and optimistic and not trudging out of bed every morning be like, Oh, let's see what's in the news these days. You know, these days, coronavirus, come on now, you know, and I think there's something like I said, there's something pure about that that's really uh, admirable and, and makes you want to go revisit it again and again. Yeah, I mean, nostalgia is big. I mean, it's just something that I think everybody, whether you're a movie lover or not, you kind of go back to that, you know, that the simpler times. Um, everybody kind of likes to go back and remember that yesteryear. And I think something like this kind of takes people back. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I remember my senior year in high school and, you know, that, 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 you know. 
And it just, it, it's just takes you back to a, a more carefree time. Yeah. And you see those, I've seen that. I don't know if it's Buzzfeed or whatever website kind of clickbaity, uh, articles about like Ferris Bueller, you never realized he was an asshole. And I'm like, well, now watching it now with that perspective in mind, I'm like, I can see why if you're coming to it as an adult, you know, you're, you're it's that meme, which I'm sure you've seen where it's over like the three stages of life. You're like Ferris and then you're Cameron and then you're Rooney. If, yeah. You know, if you're coming to it from the Rooney perspective, then you're like, oh, it's Ferris Bueller. He's a menace. You know, he's a troublemaker, a punk, that kind of thing. But if you're coming from it, you know, coming at it from the perspective of the kids and you're like, that Ferris Bueller, he's a righteous dude, you know, that kind he of thing. He is a righteous dude, yes. <laughs> He is a righteous dude. Um, I, go ahead. He was the type of guy that you want to be friends with, and he was the type of guy who you would want to rely on to get you out of a jam, because, you know, when the kids are walking around the, the, the hall, and, you know, they're collecting money in a Pepsi can for a new kidney for him, and there's all the Save Ferris signs, which nowadays would be hashtag Save Ferris. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it's just funny that I think a lot of people might even be jealous of Ferris and his charisma and his ability to get away with everything. Well, it's that, it's that question. It's like, well, is he, is he somehow immoral or whatever because he, because of the things he attempts or the things he gets away with, like as uh genie is, you know, berating the whole, the whole movie basically like, why does he get away with this stuff? But on the, or, or is he just really smart and knows how to game the system and, you know, should he be, chastised or kind of praised for it. It depends on what perspective you bring to it. The way, the fact that he's not only tricked his parents, but he's got the, like you said, the whole town believing that he's dying. He's calling up (laughs) freshmen because he knows that's like kind of an inconspicuous way to spread rumors throughout the school. Uh, You know, it's, it's, he's, he's clever. I mean, he's, he's smart and everything kind of, it seems like he does at least to some degree have kind of a, kind of a grand plan of what he's trying to achieve you know at least at least he or he plays it off that he does at some point well at least for for this one day i believe his goal is to get cameron out of his shell right (laughs) yeah i think so too do you think that that uh like what do you think of the friendship between cameron and ferris do you think that Ferris is in in any way kind of bullying Cameron or taking advantage of his friendship. Do you think there's any kind of toxicity to this friendship looking at it as an adult? Or do you think it's just because uh, I think there's or do you think it is more more pure than that? Because I think it, there are there's probably evidence to both sides. I do think that there is there is a little bit of that. But at, by the same token, as my wife pointed out when we were, when we were rewatching it recently for this podcast, uh, Cameron does call him on his on his shit. He's like one of the only people that's like, no, 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 that's crap. I'm not doing that. You know, uh, where do you stand on that? You know, uh, they're yin and yang. They they are complete opposites. Yeah. That you know, Cameron's the the clam in you know the the dark room with a hiding under a blanket. You know, constantly sick, hypochondriac. Where Ferris is the the bubbly, outgoing, popular guy. So that they're, they're complete opposites. But I think their friendship works really well because, yeah, I mean, do I think there's bullying? Not necessarily. Um, I mean, if you would think about it, if now, you know, if no, I I still don't think so. I mean, I think it's more peer pressure and just like the pushing of, yeah, you you should do this. And, you know, you'd be better off if you did. And and I I think you'll have a little more fun if you did and and live a little, you know, Um. And I think he, he really 
the moral of the story, like I said, breaking Cameron out of her shell, and, and, and you know, in my my theory. But you know, with but with them being polar opposites, I think their their friendship just really meshes well. But yeah, Cameron does call him out on his shit and says, you know, hey, you know, you're not gonna do this. You're not gonna do this. And I know a lot of people in my life that if you tell them they're not gonna do something, they're gonna go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. And you know, and Cameron says, you know, we're not gonna go to this restaurant, and you're not gonna say you're some dude. And, and <laughs> a- a- the restaurant, the sausage king of are, Chicago. <laughs> yeah, people aren't gonna believe you that you know. Like, watch me. And he gets it done, you know? Yeah. To Ferris's point, he does kind of, the character really does kind of toe that line between just when you're like, all right, Ferris is, is being slightly too arrogant or slightly too pushy. I think Broderick lets, the, it lets his, lets his, his spirit kind of shine through a little bit that you do get that sense that, no, Ferris Bueller seems like he is a certain way or whatever based on, how he handles things or how he gets things done or whatever, but he is genuinely good hearted. I think it's kind of the, the takeaway that you get throughout the course of the movie, especially when you learn more about Cameron's, you know, really depressing home life where he feels like his dad doesn't trust him. I mean, and again, a lot of this is from his perspective. Who knows if it's really how bad it really is in his house or how bad it's like how much of it is just him and his anxiety. Cause I, I'm an anxious person an introvert and all that stuff. So I, know all about how you can do a number on yourself and make things in, insanely much more uh, impactful than they really are. But like his whole thing about, oh, my dad doesn't trust me. He's never will. He loves that car. more. Like So he's got some real demons that he needs to sort out. Uh, and he instead <laughs> takes that out on the car, which doesn't work <laughs> out too well. But, you know, to Ferris's whole, as you mentioned, Ferris's whole objective is to literally just get him to face that. And so... If that is his motivation, I mean, I think that that's really kind of the underlying heart of the movie kind of breaks through all the all the craziness. And yeah, in the second half, it gets like complete crazy town where he like invading a parade and all kinds of stuff. Um, so, I, I mean, what are your thoughts on Cameron's situation and, and his this this the obviously uh, dysfunctional relationship between him and specifically his father? Well, you know, the interesting part is, is you never see and we never meet Cameron's parents. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no pictures anywhere in the house. We're not in Cameron's home very long, um, but there's no physical reference to his parents. We have no idea what they actually look like, what they actually do, what, you know, whatever. His mother's out of town and his dad, I guess, is at work whenever, you know, this, this day happens. That, uh, you know, is a lot of it in Cameron's head? Maybe. I mean, you know, like you said, you know, being an, an introvert and being shy and being, you know, a, a little backward. And yeah. 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 The teenage angst, and, you know, you just kind of want to hide under that blanket and you just don't want to deal with the, the world. You don't want to deal with high school. You don't want to deal with any of it. And, and, you know, your senior year, you're trying to, you know, you don't want to go off to the real world anytime soon. You got it real cushy, you know, in, in high school that, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's Cameron's character is is definitely uh, it, it's a lot of us, <laughs> and and I think uh, you know Ferris just kind of uh, he 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 breaks that that shell out, and and hopefully you know you know we obviously don't see anything past this this one day, mm-hmm. you know what were the ramifications of of the car. 
you know, in the, you know, breaking the glass and ended up in the ravine, you know, that's something I really would have liked to have seen how that would have played out. But obviously, like I said, we don't have Cameron's parents. Um, you know, and he, you Ferris even offers, you know, oh, hey, I'll take the blame for it. You know, right. I'm good. You know, and I think that was the moment where I think Cameron kind of cracked. He's like, yeah, I, I got to deal with my dad. Right. I mean, he also does the like pool, you know, dives into the pool kind of, uh, which I don't even know what that was about, but just kind of meditating under. I think that's kind of the the preamble to him just getting ready to 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 face his his fears and and you know the movie makes clear. I think towards the end is when you really be like, oh, they're seniors. They're like literally a couple months away from this, and then mm-hmm. like they're gonna they might not you know things are not going to be the same regardless. It's kind of it's sort of that classic teen high school comedy trope of how fleeting all of this really is and sort of giving it extra weight because of that, which you see in things like, you know, like book smart, like super bad, like every teen high school, American pie. I don't know. I'm literally thinking any high school movie I can think of. Um, they all are basically like, well, this is all going to change. We need to, you know, enjoy each other's time. And, and yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I'm just and, and, people, and people fear change. No, that's right. People fear change. And, you know, coming out of high school, it's a scary time. Yeah. And, you know, if you can have a, a couple of fun days to, to kick back and relax and enjoy life with, with your friends, you know, one last time before you guys all part ways, great. Yeah. And if it means running through Chicago, not getting caught, even better. <laughs> <laughs> Singing uh, Donka Shane and uh, Twist and Shout <laughs> on the sure, Exactly. It's all good. Um, so I want to mention one more thing about Cameron, and then I want to move on to... Uh, some of the I feel like it, we've just kind of stumbled into Ferris himself, Ferris and Cameron, and then Ferris and the uh, some of the other characters. Uh, that's sort of the structure, I guess, that we kind of fell into. But it, okay. yeah, I think it. I don't know. It works for this movie. Uh, Cameron is also at the center of what's probably my favorite scene in the movie, which is him on the phone with Rooney. Uh, as George Peterson, <laughs> Rooney, that whole thing. I, I love that scene so much. That's not only the way he plays it and, and Alan Ruck's performance, the sort of back and forth between him and Ferris, but uh, Jeffrey Jones is Rooney, just kind of fuming on the other end. And uh, Edie McClurg is sort of like as his, you know, his like wing woman during this whole conversation. And especially the reveal that we get like, you don't get the reveal of what's exactly happening until uh, probably about halfway through that scene. We don't really see Cameron's side of it. We just get Rooney's side of it. And we're like, okay, what the heck is going on? Is this, this is all Ferris is doing. Right. And we don't get that confirmed for us until, you know, that point in the, in the scene. Uh, where does that, where does that particular uh, scene in the film fall for you? Uh, is it one of your standout moments? And if so, why? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think it's, um, it's one of the first uh, jabs they really get at Rooney. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, you know, Rooney's like, oh yeah, it's Ferris Bueller, Ferris Bueller. Well, you just wheel, you know, the dead grandmother up here. We want to see the corpse. <laughs> That's school policy, you know. And then once he realizes, oh shit, this isn't Ferris, and he has no no inkling to think, hey, okay, it could be one of his buddies. <laughs> right. He would never think that. Oh, this is Cameron Fry. He's like, uh, okay, well, Ferris Bueller's on a different line. Uh, who's this guy? 
And then when uh, Cameron starts calling him, you know, pardon my French, but you're an asshole. Yes, yes, I am. I am an asshole. <laughs> and it's just, it, it's the first moment where Rooney's completely flustered over the whole thing. You know, he's, he's really itching to catch Ferris and, and just nail him. But he, he, he really thought he got him this time and he just did. It's and all, it, he just pulled one over on him and he yeah. just completely loses it. <laughs> it's also one of those things where um, it's one of the only scenes where we really see Cameron actually having like one of the first scenes where we see Cameron actually having fun and getting <laughs> in on it and really like, you know, uh, getting into his his performance, uh, improvising on the spot and like the whole call me sir, God damn it. Like all that stuff. <laughs> so much. Oh, it's so great. And Alan Ruck really praises this movie still like he's he said uh he said that this is you know anything that's ever in his career that's good that's came after this is all because of this movie and he really is one of i mean obviously matthew broderick but it's he's really he does a lot with this character probably one of the more complicated characters in the film too ferris bueller seems like he never has any inner conflict about anything that's kind of his whole thing only the meat get pinched the bold survive uh that's Mm -hmm. sort of his his uh Mm -hmm. His motto. So I, yeah, I really like, I think Cameron's probably the, the character that I feel is most identifiable for us. And that's in that way, I guess he's sort of the audience surrogate. So we're kind of on this adventure with Ferris, just like Cameron is. Yeah. And it, it's funny um, that scene, you know, Cameron's standing in the kitchen and he's got his hand over the, the receiver, the phone, and he's standing there. He's like, he's kind of dancing around and kind of, you know, twisting his hips and he's, he's really having fun with that moment. And, that's one of the few moments I think in the movie where he kind of just lets, he lets loose. Yeah. And it, it's, it's great to see that so early on in the film. I mean, he does kind of clam up as they kind of go out through the day, you know, he's nervous about having the car out and he's just about all nerves in general. But that moment there was like, okay, now we're going to have some fun today. And this is the first part of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to shift gears over to Jeffrey Jones as, as Rooney what a great villain. Let's just say that. He's just so much fun. And the <laughs> fact that you have basically Ferris Bueller and, you know, Principal Rooney sort of, they both kind of have these God complexes and this in these egos. And essentially it boils down to basically a battle of wits between the two of them. Oh, absolutely. Oh, speak to speak to that a little bit. What do you think makes Rooney such a, uh, not just, you know, a formidable villain for Ferris, at least as much as he can muster, um, but also just such a memorable one for uh, for audiences. Well, as an adult, you, you don't want to have that bratty kid get one over on you. Right. You know, and I think that's really where Rooney's coming from. He's like, you know, this kid's been a pain in my ass for four years. He's soon going to be out of my hair, and I just want to nail him once. Mm-hmm. And he, I don't think he's ever been able to nail, nail Ferris, and it's, it's kind of how it seems that he's never been able to uh, to catch Ferris doing anything necessarily wrong. But Rooney also knows, hey, Ferris is graduating. I got to do this. I'm running out of time. <laughs> and, and, and damn it, here's my opportunity. I know he's skipping. I'm going to nail this bastard. And right. he does everything in his power in order to do it. To From, you know, trying to hunt him down at a pizzeria to uh, breaking into the home it's just he's a, a an awesome villain, but a comical villain as well. Well, you you mentioned 
first of all, you mentioned how he breaks into the home. I think that's a kind of one of the parts of what I was alluding to sort of in the second half where it's like, all right, well, now he's a criminal. <laughs> he's going so far. It's just like breaking into people's houses to get this kid. I like, you know, like, you know, yeah. I, I, <laughs> um, that's where the, the door, the door was unlocked. He didn't necessarily, that's he true. wasn't necessarily bringing and entering. The front door was <laughs> unlocked. That, that was Jeannie's fault. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, to, to enter someone's home and try to snoop around, um, you know, he he really thought he was going to nail Ferris, and then you know he's face to face with Jeannie, and gets drop kicked in the face. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. With the which with the most hilarious editing choice in the movie, the sort of like whoosh, 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 <laughs> thing that happens there when he <laughs> it's gets like she kicks him like three times back back back. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was um, awesome. Uh, but he just hits the ground. <laughs> well, he had it coming, but uh, <laughs> but also to speak, you know, speaking to what you mentioned earlier that kind of jealousy that I think Rooney is like, you know, as we were saying, kind of the different perspectives that you bring to the movie as an adult or as a child or as a teenager or whatever, watching it, like Rooney knows it's, it's complicated and rough and stressful. And it's a lot of crap out there. You have to deal with as an adult, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and this kid has just been getting away with everything. No obstacles, no conflict, just slipping right past his parents, his teachers doing everything. He, he you know, I need to teach him a lesson and this is how the world really is that kind of thing. And I think that's, that really boils down to him just wanting to get one over on him, not just for his pride, but also just for like, you know, I guess symbolically for the movie just to kind of break that innocence, break that, that, uh, that confidence and, and, uh, sort of bravado that Ferris has. And my wife, you know, when we watched that recently, she made it an a kind of astute observation that it feels like in election, Matthew Broderick is basically doing the Rooney thing where Tracy Flick has just been, you know, everything's coming her way. She's going to run for class president. She's going to get it. Everything's, you know, she's going to be all set up valedictorian and all that other stuff. And he's just like, I just got to teach her a lesson. Be the, I have to be the brick wall that makes her stop for two seconds and be like, huh, maybe things aren't always just going to fall on my, on my lap, you know? Maybe that's uh, a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really smart of her. And I think that's probably kind of part of the idea in casting Broderick for election is that it's like now he's, you know, that's about what, 12 years, you know, 13 years or so after this. I think that movie's like 99, 2000. So he is, you know, obviously, you know, more of the Rooney age, about 40, late 30s, 40. And he's kind of graduated to that position. And I think it's, it's an interesting, I like, that would actually be an interesting movie to discuss to, to, to watch after this. Like kind of be an interesting kind of double feature, the way that those two films complement each other and the way that Broderick sort of shifts from one world to the other. He's the anti-Ferris in, in uh, an election. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, one other Rooney related thing that I noticed is that there's a moment where he's talking to Grace, who again, Edie McClurg so <laughs> doesn't get enough credit for how much she brings to this movie. Um, she's, she's really great in this. And of course she was already, uh, I think this is the same year or like the year before she was in, uh, planes, trains and automobiles and has that great scene with Steve Martin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. That's a great movie too. Um, where he almost breaks the fourth wall. He just kind of like just the angle of the, of the movie, the angle of the camera. He just kind of does like a half glance to the camera but we're on Ferris's side, so he never really—he doesn't really get that privilege. It's almost like he wants to talk to us, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's Ferris's movie, so he's kind of held back. And I thought that was—that was, a, that was a, a kind of a fun little, uh, little moment that slips past. 
I mean, Amy McClurg is just great. Um, you know, she's, she's such a great physical comedian. Um, you know, with her sitting there at the desk and she goes to pull a pencil out of her hair and then she goes back in and realizes she's got another pencil mm-hmm. in her hair. <laughs> she's got another pencil on her hair and I'm like, Oh my goodness. That's just great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, she brings a lot to that. You need that, that, uh, you know, he, Rooney needs his, his, his foil. And I think she does, she contributes a lot to some of the best moments in the, in the principal's office there in the school. Absolutely. Uh, we Absolutely. need, we need to bring up the, the third teenager in the group. So we have Mia Sarah, Mia Sarah here as Sloan, uh, what are your kind of your thoughts on her character? She probably has the least dimension, but again, that's very typical of, unfortunately, of the female in the group, especially back in the eighties. And a lot of chan- and a lot of times, they're the most undeveloped. I feel like we know the least about her of everyone. It's really more about Ferris and Cameron's friendship, and she's just kind of along for the ride. So, what are what are some of your thoughts on uh, Sloane Peterson? Yeah, I mean, uh, w- with the dynamic with the three of them, you know, Cameron should be technically the third wheel. But I think in this story, I think really she is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, like you said, there really isn't much character development with her. Uh, pretty much the only thing we know about her is she's a year behind Ferris and Cameron and she's a cheerleader. OK, that, that's pretty much all we know about her personality. Right. Um, but apparently she's clever uh, just as much as as the other two are um, and follows Ferris's direction. You know, she programmed her home answering machine to say, you know, we're at the funeral home. Ah, here's the number <laughs> you can reach us at. Um, but she also, you know, he hands her the phone and in the restaurant and says, you know, ask for ask for uh, a Proman and, and describe me. And she does it willingly yeah. and quickly. And, you know, she's thinking on her feet, you know, just as as quick witted as, as he would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, so he puts her in those situations, kind of how he's throwing Cameron in those situations where I don't think she quite. She doesn't buck him the way Cameron, I think, did. Um, she doesn't hesitate, you know. Um, and there's a, a scene where they're uh, in the cab cars, and the very up. next cab over, the camera, uh, Ferris's dad is in the next car. And, you know, in a split second, she's sitting there with sunglasses on and red lipstick, making kissy faces at Ferris's dad, <laughs> who apparently does not realize this is his son's girlfriend. Yeah, I don't um, think Fer- I don't think the Buellers know much about Ferris's social life. Yeah, the, the, I kind of got that with with, with that particular <laughs> scene. You know, my, my son's girlfriend saying kissy faces—that's weird, but okay. But she's also willing to throw herself into those those situations too. And like I said, she doesn't she doesn't buck them and the way uh, Cameron does. And and uh, I, I think she kind of probably enjoys the the fast crazy lifestyle that Ferris is living too. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, if, this is I, I really love this movie, like as you you know as you mentioned as you do, but if there was a criticism, I would probably be like it would have been nice to have a little more development on Sloane, a little kind of get the sense of give get the sense that she's more than just you know the beautiful dutiful girlfriend slash accomplice of Ferris Bueller, and uh, and kind of get a sense for who she is in her own life because in this movie. I actually feel like in a way she has more chemistry with Cameron than she does with Ferris. And I kind of almost feel like if they were to make a sequel to this, like 20 years later, Sloan would be with Cameron and not Ferris. Just the way that, you know, the way that they they talk to each other, the way that Ferris seems like he's just so off on his own. Like he's he's off on another planet doing his thing. And they're like his they're like his basically his uh, his Ron and Hermione. 
you know? Yeah, okay. <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, to go back to Harry Potter again. Um, do you do you pick up on any of that or is this am I totally blowing your mind right now? Uh, no, actually, the, you got a, actually brought up a good point that I'm kind of thinking about now that I didn't necessarily think about that before. But, um, you know, maybe Sloan wanted a little stability in her life and she probably wants the investment banker that's sitting in the, the high tower of, you know, somewhere in downtown Chicago and living in the suburbs with a white picket fence, too, you know. Um, and maybe that would she'd get that with Cameron, you know. But um, you never really get what she wants mm -hmm. and like that goes back to the character development you know what are her goals you know she's they're her and cameron are walking after the parade and they do have that that deep discussion like you said about the chemistry between the two of them i think is a little more prevalent than the chemistry between her and ferris that you know she looks at cameron and says you know what do you want to do and he goes i have no idea and he says to her, what do you want to do? I don't know. What are you interested in? I don't know. You know, they, they kind of have that, that little heart to heart. Right. But it doesn't really get fleshed out very much. You right. know, I, I kind of wanted a little more out of that conversation. It, and it feels like the kind of, this feels like the kind of movie that at the end would have the text like, you know, Cameron went on to become this <laughs> and he, he and so were married with three kids. Ferris Bueller is still <laughs> still living life. <laughs> he's, he's wandering the earth uh, like uh, like Kane in Kung Fu. It's just like, <laughs> I mean, um, so it almost feels like they could have tagged something like that on at the end, even though I like the ambiguity as well. But yeah, I, I think that that's kind of where I see that going. And also regarding her whole, the, the whole thing with her grandma, I assume her grandma was probably has already been dead, right? Is that kind of your assumption? The fact that they're like, your grandma died and that, that she's that she was playing that off? That was sort of I'm, my thing. I'm kind of thinking so because, I mean, obviously the, the ways that these guys get out of school are so far-fetched <laughs> that I really don't know that they'd really go over today. Right. Um, if her, her grandmother really did die, you still have to be able to get the kid out of school. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so... You know, I'm, I'm thinking her grandmother was already dead. <laughs> and the school probably just didn't know that. So. Right, that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, let's see. I think, I feel like the only, the last relationship is, Fer we did Ferris and, well, Ferris and himself, Ferris's favorite relationship. Um, Ferris and Cameron, <laughs> Ferris and Rooney, Ferris and Sloan. So Ferris and Jeannie, I think they, you know, Jennifer Grey is kind of in her own movie, I feel like for a lot of those, she's kind of just, doing her own thing. And it's really just her arc is a stop obsessing over her. Are, are they the same age? Is she, he the little brother? He, he, they're, they're both in high school and she's, are they both seniors, I guess? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think she, she might be behind him. That That's at least how I took it. Mm -hmm. I don't see them both being seniors. Um, Cause it never references them being twins. Right. So I, I don't think, I think she's probably the little sister. And, you know, I think the little sister to the big brother, you know, you want to kind of look up to your big brother, but okay. I, I mean, I have sisters. Did my parents have a favorite? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but I'm the baby. Maybe I was the favorite, but, um, you know, I think she had this jealousy thing where, you know, 
Ferris gets this and Ferris gets that and Ferris gets this and Ferris gets that. Or in all honesty, I think Ferris was actually kind of jealous of her. She got the car, he got the computer. You know, how the hell does that work out? Right. Um, but I, I think Jeannie's just jealous of, of Ferris and the, the fact that she's not as cunning as he is. She's not as smooth and she'd get caught because she'd make a stupid move or, um, and I think, and I think she kind of just kind of maybe even hide in a corner because if you're walking, they were, they were walking through the halls of the school and the one kid, like I said, comes up to her with the, the soda can, you know, Hey, we're collecting for the kidney for, for Ferris. She, this kid has no idea that he's talking to Ferris's sister. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, your brother's the most popular guy in high school and nobody knows that you're, you know, his little sister. I kind of find that a little, a little bit odd. So I think she was kind of backward. Um, but definitely the, the jealousy factor is definitely a, a big, big aspect of, of her personality. Yeah, to the point that she, by towards the end of the movie, just rebels and starts making out with Charlie Sheen, which is, as we know in real life, never a good idea. Um, oh, say, that's just, oh, so bad. <laughs> So, so bad. Not winning. Not winning. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> not winning. Um, but yeah, so no, I agree. But I, I like that uh, she kind of has even she has some growth uh, throughout the course of the movie that she just chooses not to f- focus so much on him and kind of because because it's also a lot of times it's, it's easier to. And these are teenagers we're talking about, so they have their whole lives to figure this stuff out. But it's also, it's always easier to be like, oh, well, how come this person, how come this works out for this person? So focusing on what everyone around you has and what, or don't, or doesn't have, as opposed to actually taking action to get your your own life together. And I think I like the fact that that, uh, we have sort of this ultimate sibling rivalry thing going on, where she's basically the secondary villain for most of the movie. Um, until you know, until she faces the the uh, the actual villain and and drop kicks him across the head about four times in this matter of a second, um, but uh, that that she ultimately sort of aligns herself back with Ferris, that she kind of backs him up, backs up his story that he was sick and uh, and and you know they they st- I feel like they have a little bit of a better understanding of each other by the end of the film, and I, I like that. I think that's I think that's it's cool to have that kind of uh, I don't know. The emotional turning point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and the funny part is, is the one who I think really makes her snap and think about that is Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Of all people in the movie, for her to get the perspective out of, it's it's freaking Charlie Sheen who is, he's sitting there cracking his knuckles. What are you in for? Drugs. Okay. Not surprising. (laughs) Um, But he's the one who kind of opens her eyes, you know. Why should he get the ditch and everyone goes? Well, why don't you ditch? Because I'd get caught. Well, mm. don't get caught. I mean, don't be jealous of what he's doing. You know, do your own thing. Don't, yeah. don't, don't. Yeah, don't, don't blame him for your misery. Go do something to make you happy. Right. Exactly. But it's easier, to, and this is something that everyone, in adults, very much included, struggles with. It's like it's easier to complain about about your current situation than to change it. And then I think exactly. that's. Yeah, and then the fact that Jeannie's learning that in high school, that's, you know, I don't want to, obviously, <laughs> obviously, I, she's a, kind of ahead of a lot of people in that regard, but also, <laughs> I I hate to say that, I kind of wish I had a little Charlie Sheen wisdom every once in a while, if that's what it, if that's what it sounds like, <laughs> um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we could all use a little Charlie Sheen in our life, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so no, I like that she, she, you know, her arc is very sort of slight, it's just kind of that, 
that little bit of like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I should just not worry about Ferris so much and actually be his sister instead of his enemy. He's already got one of those, <laughs> this crazy person who yeah. Jeffrey Jones, I don't know if you know, but in real life, he's like a sex offender and stuff. So it's like, Oh, yeah, I do remember reading something about yeah, that. Yeah, so it's yeah. like, you know, let's focus on that guy. He's clearly, between him and Charlie Sheen, yeah, there's those are the people you want to stay away from. Maybe uh, Jeannie and Ferris could back each other up a little bit more, and maybe he could teach her some of his tricks. I mean, who knows? Um, yeah. I, and not that I want them to ever make a sequel to this, because I like it the way it is. I think sequels oh, would no. not be worth this is, this worthwhile. Is- this is one of those movies that does not need a sequel. It does not need a reboot. Just right. let it go. I think it is a Fox movie, though, which makes me wonder, like, uh-oh, Disney owns oh. Fox now. I know they're rebooting. I think they're rebooting uh, Home Alone with the little boy, one of the little boys from um, Jojo Rabbit, which is a movie I love. But also, I don't know if I want to see another Home Alone necessarily, but who knows? We'll see. In this day and age, you just kind of get used to no, but t- turning it away. Well, there was um there was the short lived TV series. Um, That's true. There was that. There was um, well, there was a short lived actually Ferris Bueller TV series, and then I believe there was a, a a series that was kind of based kind of off of that called Parker Lewis Can't Lose. Mm. Oh yeah, I remember that show. Um, so I mean, it. I think people tried to play off of Ferris, but it just didn't work. Um, okay. I believe Jennifer Aniston was was part of one of those shows i don't remember which one i'd have to imdb that one yeah hmm interesting but but yeah the the tv series the the spinoffs to, to try to you know capitalize on the ferris builder popularity they just they didn't work no so you know let the movie stand alone let it be a classic john hughes films should not be screwed with i agree yeah my I agree. opinion i should the I man should, was a genius yeah for sure I, uh, I should clarify, it is Paramount, not Fox. So that makes me a little more relaxed. Oh, okay. I'm like, okay, good. Oh. <laughs> because knowing Disney these days, they're like, what animated movie did we make like 40 years ago? Let's do a new version of that. I'm like, oh, why? Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, live action everything. No. And, I, and, I, and I, you know, I like some of those movies. I obviously grew up with a lot of those Disney movies, the animated ones <laughs> and all that. So I don't mind even some of them. But it's just like, they're just being so shameless and just like, you know, I feel like we're like about three three years away from like a live action great mouse detective or something like movies Ugh. that didn't even work the first time and i lo- like i mean commercially i actually like great mouse, great mouse detective quite a bit uh, as a movie but <laughs> um but yeah so anyway now we're way off of ferris bueller so a <laughs> <laughs> few other things i just wanted to bring up uh before we start wrapping it up here uh, i i do love that this is sort of your classic movie high school uh, where there's, I don't know what high school has huge lecture halls like this. I that I didn't see anything like that until college. And so I think that yeah, was that was exactly. It's uh, I didn't go to a high school logo that looked like that. That's for right, sure. Right, exactly. Well, it's also like you know the the thing you see all the time on uh, like the meme or whatever, where it's like, what the hell did Kevin McAllister's dad do to afford this ginormous house? But there's like 20 people staying in. <laughs> It's like um, <laughs> suburban fantasy. Exact, exact, it's exactly what it is. Um, I, I love all the uh, all the the quotes. Obviously, the, if you don't stop and look around, the 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 Ben Stein Bueller Bueller that whole moment. There's like as you said earlier, there's just so many like every line from this movie is is quotable, and that's again something that I feel like applies to pretty much most of John Hughes movies. I feel like they are pretty. They are are very tightly, not only tightly written as far as they're all about 90 minutes and very, you know, very briskly paced, that kind of thing. But just like very, it's sort of the the thing that 
some of the more recent movies, like I'm thinking specifically of Juno, which tries so hard to be hip, so hard to like create its own lingo that sometimes it almost comes off a little too strong. Uh, I feel like John Hughes like nails that balance perfectly and that it's stylized, but it's not, you know, ridiculous where you're you can't even believe that these are actual human beings talking to each other. <laughs> And, and yeah, like you said, Ferris Bueller is is a, I don't I don't want to say fodder because that makes it sound bad, but it is it is meme worthy, it is quote worthy, it is gif worthy, um, you know, and, and that life moves pretty fast. Quote, it's on coffee mugs, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's everywhere, and like they, these these little references, like you, like I said before, you know, there's a lot of pop culture references in the movie itself. Um, you know, the, the Star Wars theme plays when the guys are joyriding in the car. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about you know, those guys completely. Yeah. He, you know, he's standing in the, you know, he's dancing around his bedroom to the I Dream of Genie theme song. Like, little things like that, you know, the pop culture references in the movie. But on the flip side, it's also, it's one of those things that you see references now. And like you said, you hadn't seen the movie until, you know, you say like seven, eight years ago. Right. That now that you see it, you're like, oh, those references, God, they're everywhere, you mm-hmm. know, and now I get them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Let's see. I, I love all the all the sort of insane near misses. You mentioned the cab earlier and uh, Sloan <laughs> sort of flirting with uh, with Mr. Bueller because Ferris told her to basically. Um, <laughs> oh, and I love her sort of joke of like, oh, he, you know, he's like, what's he doing? Like, he's making obscene hand gestures. Like what? <laughs> he's um, licking the glass. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, I have to mention the the big reveal of the car with the oh, yeah, that kind of thing. Yep. I love yes. the, the music again. John Hughes is another element of his movies that, that he's, you know, everything, you know, Breakfast Club has Don't You Forget About Me, Weird Science has, well, Weird Science, and and in this this movie has such uh, such perfect usage of, uh, application of, of songs to uh, to moments that create that, create those indelible, you know, scenes that move shows like, shows like Family Guy reference constantly, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, is right. there is there anything about Ferris Bueller that we haven't talked about? Any favorite scenes or moments that you wanted to bring up before we uh, before we finish up here? I've been trying to research this, and I don't know um, if you would know the answer to this, to this as well. Is this the first movie where we had the end credit scene where you know he Rooney's on the bus with the kids, and that scene plays out through the entire credits, and then at the very very end we get Ferris in his bathroom saying um it's over go home and then that's it right was that was that like the birth of the post credit scene i think again with like with the fourth wall breaking i feel like if it wasn't the the very first one it was it was the one that started every other all, all the other movies trying to 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 ape it to kind of imitate like that a approach. trend yeah because i remember you know obviously like i said i hadn't watched ferris bueller growing up but i had seen I had seen, weirdly enough, the Masters of the Universe movie from 1987 that that did terribly, and you know nobody remembers it except they're unless they're you know my age and grew up watching the cartoon and stuff. But that movie has an end credits, like post credit scene after it's over, where like Skeletor pops out and is like, "I'll be back" or whatever. And that I remember, and that was just the year after this. So I'm assuming that it was the beginning of of setting off that uh, the notion that. Hey, movies, did you know you can just mess with people and put like little gags at the end of the credits? And then, of course, now everybody wants to attribute it to Marvel, which has really embraced that. And then it's just kind of like their thing now. But uh, yeah, I think if it wasn't the first, it's definitely the one that, that 
made people really take notice. And the fact that they have that Rooney hook throughout the credits, I think, is designed so that people don't miss that Ferris thing at the end, because otherwise nobody would have stuck around. That's true. That's true. I mean, uh, nowadays, with any movie, I mean, definitely with the Marvel movies, um, you know, I, I'm definitely the type of person who likes to stick around through the credits because give credit to and, and respect to the people who worked on the film, you know. Right. Um, but you, you never know what you're going to get at the end nowadays. Right. But yeah, back then, people definitely would have got up and laughed. And the only people who would have seen Ferris at the end were the people sleeping up with the popcorn and the movie theater floor. Mm-hmm. Um, but now even that scene there is so iconic and so used in pop culture. Now, um, you know, my husband and I are, are Penguin fans. We, we live outside of Pittsburgh and uh, we were at a game and we happen to be, you know, not necessarily lagging getting out of the arena, but you know, as you know, they're starting to shut things down on the jumbotron in the middle of the ice. It's 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 the Ferris Bueller scene. Mm-hmm. It's over. Go home. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's just funny. That's awesome. Yeah, and then of course, uh, 2016 Deadpool does basically the exact same thing. Just yes, <laughs> it goes full yes. circle. Ferris awesome. Bueller is referencing pop culture, and other things are referencing Ferris, Ferris Bueller. So. Yeah, I mean, that uh, it's over, go home. I can't think of a better note to end on than that. So, Kimberly Cook, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at kimisu1024. And I look forward to chatting with all of you guys there. Hit me up and we'll chat about some movies. Excellent. We'll have to do this again and not wait almost a year to have another conversation. It's just been, uh, it's crazy times right now. So, uh, <laughs> we'll see how it, it goes. It is always. It was always fun chatting with you about films. Yes, as like likewise, likewise. So thank you so much for for bringing this one uh, to the table. Uh, this, like I said, this is a movie that I really enjoy quite a bit as well, and uh, I'm glad we got a chance to to get into it. So uh, to the people listening, uh, it's over. Go home. <laughs> thanks, Kimberly. <laughs> Uh, thanks so much. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.